Again, thanks for being here this morning. If you pull out your copy of the scripture, you pull out your listening guide and her pen or pencil so that you can follow along. I was preaching at a, a different church than ours and it was not a spectacular sermon as I remember, just very, just very ordinary one. And at this church, once you were done with the sermon, the pastor went and stood off the stage down in the front and people would come forward to pray. They could come to pray with, with the pastor or they could come and pray by themselves. And so I finish the message. I go and stand. Uh, so there's some music happening and people are coming to pray. And this man steps out of the aisle and it's right in front of me and he is making a beeline for me. It felt like he had lowered his shoulders and was on his way to talk to me. And so as he's coming, it was a pretty big church. And so it was a long aisle that I had to think about, like, what is it that I said to make this guy mad? Because he's definitely mad at me. And I was like, did I offend him personally? Did I offend a group that he's a part of? Did I teach the scripture inaccurately? Uh, Maybe a portion of scripture that he's apparently very passionate about because he's on his way. As soon as he gets to me, he lays his hands on my shoulder, a big guy, and pulls me into his chest. But he's bigger than than I am, so it's like my head is like buried in his chest (laughs) in an awkward manner. And he starts confessing his sin, like, like all of his sin right in my ear and he's like yelling it so that it's louder than the music and you know I didn't know what to say I didn't want to say like oh hey that's not a big deal because it is a huge deal what he's telling me you know uh, it's, it's, so we just we pray together really is, is all we did and uh, I, I thought about it later I don't even know that he was confessing his sin in order to practice the scripture, like it says in 1 John. I think he just was stirred by the Spirit of God, realized that he had done things wrong, and said, I don't know what to do with this, so uh, here, take it from me. You know, I don't want it anymore. Take it from me. And I was the nearest and best person in his mind to give that to. This is a really important question. That I think every person needs to ask, where do I put my sin what should I do with it? All of us are in the same boat today. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So what are we supposed to do with it? We see in the scripture the corruptive and corrosive and destructive nature of sin. Adam and Eve lived practically in utopia. Everything was perfect. They had a unique relationship with God, but they ate from the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from and sin corrupted and destroyed what they had. One chapter later, their children, Cain and Abel, there's murder. Cain murders Abel because that's the way that sin works. It never stays confined in the boundaries that we hope it will stay confined in. It always breaks the levees and it ended up with murder. It started with a piece of fruit, and one chapter later, someone lost their life. Right after that, the world is wicked and evil. It's filled with people like Cain. God sees a righteous man named Noah, says, I'm going to start all over, but I'm going to start with Noah, puts Noah and his family in a boat. You remember that story, 40 days and 40 nights. Then after the water recedes, Noah comes out, acts like a fool, gets drunk and naked. That's how the story of Noah ends. Corrupts and destroys Noah's story. After him, it's, it's Abraham who believed in God enough 
that when God said, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your city, I want you to leave everything that you've known and just come and follow me. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. I'm not giving you a roadmap. Just come and follow me. Abraham does. Leaves his family, leaves all of his things, and follows God on this journey. Well, they sojourn into a land with a powerful king. Abraham gets afraid of the king because his wife is beautiful, and he thinks the king's going to take his wife. So he says to his wife, let's pretend that you're my sister, and essentially gives his wife away to be the wife of another man. Abraham, the great patriarch of God's people, corrupted corroded by sin. After Abraham, it was God's entire nation of Israel. They had seen wonders and signs. God delivered them from slavery. He, he led them with a pillar of fire and a smoky cloud. He provided for them every day, and yet they treat God the way a skeptic would, even though they had seen all of these miraculous wonders. After that, it's David, a man after God's own heart. That's the way Bible, the Bible describes him, and, and yet commits adultery. In the New Testament, Peter, the leader of the disciples, the one boldly and theologically accurate when talking about Jesus, denies that he even knows Jesus three times when his life was on the line or he thought his life was on the line. We have evidence in the scripture of the destructive, corrosive, corruptive nature of sin. We, we all know stories. Even last week, I heard about a guy who went to the gym, joined a gym because he wanted to be fit and met a woman there. And the day after Christmas, left his wife and three kids because he thought that his life would be better with his mistress. We see it in the Bible. We see it in our, uh, other people's lives. And we see it in our own life. So what do we do with this sin when we realize that we have it. You see in your listing guide, there are three things that all of us have tried at one time or another. First, we try to hide it. I can hide it. I can keep it a secret. This is especially tempting at church. If we're not careful, the motto of any church could become, I'm good, I've always been good, and I always will be good. I mean, think about already today how many times you've said the word good. I mean, I've said it a million times, and I knew that I was preaching this message. And at this point I was going to say this. And I've still said when people have asked me, I'm good. Uh, That's what we do. We give the impression that everything is great. I'm great. My kids are great. They always obey. They, they always listen. They always say yes, sir. And no, sir. And they come and ask me, how can I serve you today? That's the first thing that my kids say when they wake up in the morning, right? That's the impression that we give one another. And if anything is less than good, we try to hide it. And we especially do that with sin. The problem is when we keep our sin a secret, there are two options for us. Option number one is that secret will eat us alive. Or option number two, we convince ourselves that we don't have any sin. We do such a good job of hiding it. And then we become self-righteous about other people's sin. That's what happened to the Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus referred to them, if you remember, as whitewashed tombs, painted tombs. They look beautiful on the outside. And Jesus said about these men, but you're, on the inside, it's filled with dead men's bones. And you can see how easy that would become at church. We paint the exterior to hide what's inside. I can hide it. I can rename it. That's the second thing that we've done. And, uh, I, I, I rationalize my sin by just calling it something different. It's not sin. It's a struggle. It's not sin. It's a personality flaw. It's not sin. It's something I inherited, a weakness I inherited 
from my parents. Uh, it's not sin, it's my demons. We, we say that about other people. His, his demons got the best of him. Well, when we refer to our sin as our demons, quote, unquote, it gives responsibility to the demons. They're the ones that are doing it to me. It's not, I don't have any responsibility. I'm just an innocent bystander. And, and these other things, these outside forces, these outside people, they are doing this to me. I can hide it, I can rename it, or I can empower it. We've all tried to do that. I can just lean into it. It's, it's not sin. It's just something I'm going to do. Sometimes we give ourselves over to that when we don't see a future in which we are able to overcome our sin. I'm going to struggle with this my whole life, especially you can resonate if you've ever done the, I made a mistake. I promise I'll never do it again. I did it again. I promise I'll never do it again. I did it again. I promise I'll never do it again. If you've ever been in that cycle, you can see how you would just say, I'm never going to get over it. I might as well just own it. So we empower it or we empower our sin when we disagree with God. We say, my conscience is clear. I I don't think that this is wrong. We're seeing this happen right now in our our culture. If you have little ones, you stick your your fingers in their ears. I'm going to use the S word here for a couple of minutes. But our culture for a long time has empowered sex. That's been the motto. Kind of do what you want to do. There are no boundaries. The only boundaries that are real are the boundaries that uh, you put in place. So you have, for example, comedians who's, who are funny and their whole act is about sex and sex stuff. Shocker, 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 shocker. Some of their private lives are destructive to themselves and other people. Right? So what's happening in our culture right now is a crisis of belief. They have believed for the longest time, empower, 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 do what you want. This is the best you. This is what you should do. Your conscience is clear. Empower, empower, empower. But they don't know how to reconcile this empowerment is hurting specifically women, assaulting them and harassing them. They don't know how to grapple with those two things at the same time. So our culture is having a crisis of belief because maybe there is a moral standard and maybe that moral standard does come from God. So, so where should I put my sin if I'm not supposed to hide it and I'm not supposed to rename it and I'm not supposed to empower it? Where should I put it? Well, in the Old Testament, it, it would tell you to put it into the hands of the priests and the priestly system. And you see in your listening guide, that's an imperfect priest offering an imperfect sacrifice. An imperfect priest offering an imperfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7. I really just want to concentrate on one verse today. It says in verse 27, Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. So it says, unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They, that's the priest, did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. So when you read the Old Testament law in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see that there are five major offerings that the people would offer, these priests would offer to deal with your sin and my sin. 
the five offerings in the scripture, the five major offerings are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, also known as the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. So these are the five major ones. There were some others, but these are the major ones. All of them... For the purpose of dealing with our sin. And these priests, they were consistently offering them. This wasn't just a one-time thing, a one-time sacrifice, and you're never guilty again. Uh, a a one-time sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a ram, and, and you'll always have fellowship with God and with other people. One burnt offering. No, they were consistently being offered all day long. Some of these offerings you would initiate yourself. If you knew that you had sinned and it was obvious, you would go to the temple, you would purchase a bull or a ram or a turtle dove, and you would put it through the process as an offering, and the priest would offer it on your behalf to take care of your sin. Some of the other offerings, the priests initiated themselves, not just for you, but for the entire nation of Israel. But all the time, yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, Sacrifices were being made in the temple to deal with our sin. But it was an imperfect sacrifice because it wasn't just one time and then done. They always had to be offered and they were offered by imperfect priests. Priests who were just normal like you and I, just human beings. Some with strong willpower, some without strong willpower, some given over to goodness, some given over to evil, just normal people like us who had been appointed and anointed for being a priest. So in order to offer a sacrifice for you, they first had to offer a sacrifice for themselves so that they would be clean, so then that you could be clean. Now, that priestly system doesn't exist anymore. There's no temple in Jerusalem. All that's left is just one of the walls. Um, so you couldn't go and initiate this kind of sacrifice Anymore, But that doesn't mean we don't try. It's just a different sacrificial system. We still look to imperfect people to help us with our sins. Some of us look to modern day priests, some of us or pastors or spiritual leaders. If I am connected to this person, if this person prays for me, then it's everything's going to be great between God and I. That's why some of us are here at church. If I just connect myself to church, it's going to clean me and I'm going to feel close to God, uh, but those are imperfect people. And we still try to appease God by offering imperfect sacrifices. When I was in my mid-20s, I was on the pastoral staff at this really great church. I was doing youth ministry. And, uh, it was really, really fun staff. Not a, not a big staff, uh, but uh, really, really fun. And every Tuesday, we would go and have what we called staff lunch. So we'd have staff meeting, and then we would get on the church van and drive the church van to some restaurant that we had chosen, and then and then, uh, then we would eat. And it, it was great. And they were fun, and they were funny. And so it was an atmosphere where you could just joke around, which is which is great. But I'm that person who always took it too far. You know, like we're giving uh, somebody a hard time and it's all in good fun. And then, then I make it not fun anymore. And, and every Tuesday I would come back to my office and be like, you know, I'm a moron. You know, this is, I'm an idiot. And I feel bad about that thing that I said. It was hilarious. I mean, obviously, but <laughs> gosh, why do I say that? I just, it's like every Tuesday I had an appointment of diarrhea of the mouth. Every Tuesday at lunchtime, and then I found myself doing the same thing Tuesday afternoon, just being like, God, this help me. And I would 
to say next Tuesday, I'm not, next Tuesday, I'm going to be clean. Just not going to say anything. And then always, always. What I found myself doing is, is bargaining with God, making deals with God. Really, I was making a deal with myself. But I hated that feeling of, and you may have experienced this, where you feel close to God and then you make a mistake and it feels like he's a million miles away. And you want that back, so you try to figure out how to get close again. So I started making a deal like the one that you see here. So every Tuesday, I would... Uh, 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 not that one. Uh, next one. There we go. Um, I would let my mouth get away from me. So to make up the distance between God and I that now existed... I could do four days of Bible study in a row, like the good kind of Bible study, like the kind that's not fun, you know, like this, the nitty gritty, you know, like Ecclesiastes, you know, something like that. Not the fun stuff, not, not the Psalms, not the hard stuff that doesn't make any sense. If I did four days of Bible study in a row, that would close the distance that I had created between God and I. Or if I didn't want to wait four days, I could have two meaningful times of prayer in my mind. I felt like that would bring us back together. Like good prayer, like the kind that was honest and was more than just bless me, bless this, bless help me. But really the, the good kind of prayer. If I, maybe if I did that, it would bring God and I back together. Or I could just do an anonymous, unsolicited act of service just to help somebody. And that would bring us back together. And and I would make these deals with God. But really, this was just one-sided because what I was offering was an imperfect sacrifice. To deal with my sin, I had let my mouth get away from me in a way that dishonored God. I would offer and sacrifice these other things so that God would be pleased with me again and could be close to me. But that's just the same thing they were doing in the Old Testament. An imperfect person, me, Offering an imperfect sacrifice. So if that's not the answer, what is? Well, in the New Testament, and you see this in the listening guide, the answer is don't put your sin in the hands of the priest. Put it into the hands of Jesus, who was the perfect person to offer the perfect sacrifice. That's why it says in the second half of verse 27, but Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. He was the perfect person. The verses before verse 27 just illustrate how perfect he was. It says in verse 24, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. That was one of the problems with those Old Testament priests is that they would live be anointed for their job, and then they would die, and someone would have to replace them. They would live and die. Somebody would have to replace them. They would have to live and die. Somebody replaced them. They would live and die. But Jesus died and then resurrected. He lives forever, so he doesn't ever need to be replaced. There doesn't need to be somebody who comes along and helps Jesus or takes the baton from Jesus. That baton is always in his hand. He lives forever. Verse 25, Therefore he is able to once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Another problem with those Old Testament sacrifices is that they didn't last. Uh, You'd have to do them again next year. You'd have to do it again next month. You'd have to do them again the next holiday. You'd have to do those sacrifices again the next time that you sinned in an especially specific way. They just covered you for part-time. But Jesus is able to save us completely. Nothing needs to be added to his work. He didn't 
do his work and then we do some work, he's able to save us completely. And it says he lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So he keeps advocating for us. In the priestly system, you come to the temple and you make an offering. That priest forgets you and has to deal with the next person and then forgets the next person and deals with the next person and forgets them and on and on and on. But Jesus is the priest who always remembers and who always advocates, who always speaks up for us. Verse 26, he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest honor in heaven. The priest in the Old Testament, as we've mentioned, they were just, they were just us. They were us born in a specific lineage of people, the lineage of Levi, set apart from birth to be these priests, but they were just people. That's why they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves first before they could help us. But Jesus is holy, he's blameless, he's unstained, untainted by sin. He's the perfect person who offers the perfect sacrifice. We see that in verse 20, but Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for people's sins. I mean, imagine with me these priests, you know, it was a big deal to work in the house of God. By the time that Jesus was living, there were so many priests born in the tribe of Levi. You really only got one shot to do temple work. And so imagine that day of the calendar was coming and this was your day. This is what you had been born with to take your turn offering sacrifices on behalf of people. They had a a uniform that was laid out. There were no casual Fridays in the temple. Like as prescribed in the Bible, the way they were supposed to dress and their uniforms all laid out and they would get dressed in a specific way. Then they had some tools and those tools would fit in their pockets and then they would go to the temple and then they'd have to arrange everything that morning before it opened. They'd have to set everything up. They'd have to get everything in place. They'd have to get the animals in place to be sacrificed. They'd have to get the instruments of the temple in place, ready to go. They'd have to light the fires of these altars. Once it was all ready to go, then they could be open for business and people like you and I could come and have our sin taken care of. But imagine when you showed up for the priest to offer a sacrifice on your behalf that day. If the priest didn't reach for a bull or a ram or a goat or a turtle dove. But he said, for you. Then he crawls up on the altar himself. For you, I'll be your offering. This is what Jesus has done for us. He said, I'm going to arrange everything. And I'm going to remember you. I'm going to have everything in place. And I'm, I'm dressed with holiness and blamelessness. And there are no stains on my garment. I'm ready for today's work. But I'm not going to offer an imperfect sacrifice for you. I'll be your offering. I'll be the one to make you right with God. I'll be the one to bring you close, the kind of closeness that you can't unstick from. 
See, all of those sacrifices in the first half of the Bible, they were just a shadow of the better one to come. See, that's what the cross is. The cross was not the death penalty of the Roman Empire. The cross of Jesus was an offering, an offering to God on our behalf. So what do we do now? Well, there's not a million sermons that could accurately answer that question, but a few things I, can, I think that we can do today. First, we can stop hiding our sin. Adam and Eve tried to hide it from God. He said, I'm gonna cover myself with fig leaves. I'm gonna hide behind some trees and I'm gonna hope he doesn't see stop hiding. Uh, yesterday, last night, Amanda and I uh, were watching a documentary about a polka king who had a Ponzi scheme. It's a very specific documentary. As you can tell, it was riveting. Now, it was pretty interesting. So this guy is this huge polka figure in northeast Pennsylvania. So I didn't know about the polka scene in Northeast Pennsylvania in the 1990s, but it was big. And this guy was like the biggest one. So he wanted to raise some money to support his thriving polka business. And he started borrowing money from people and, and promising them a huge return. Long story short, he steals a bunch of money from senior citizens. And the whole time I'm, I'm watching this documentary, I'm wondering, did, did he know what he was doing or did it just get away from him? Because he didn't seem like a super greedy guy. You know, he built a house, but he didn't build a mansion. He didn't go and buy a yacht. He just was a pretty normal guy. And so I'm just wondering the whole time, like, did he mean to do this? Or did, did he just kind of accidentally build a Ponzi scheme and take millions of dollars from people if you can accidentally do that? And I think what happened is he had a genuine belief that if people invested in his business, that he could give them a return on their investment. But then when he couldn't, he didn't know what to do. And so he tried to keep it a secret and he just kept borrowing more and more and more and more money. And here's what I think. I think he was hoping for one big idea, one giant thing to happen that would fix it all. And he thought if I can just hide it long enough, if I can keep it from people, if I can keep it from the federal government, then something's gonna change, something's gonna shift and this is all gonna solve itself. I think that's what happened. So I'm watching this documentary and I'm thinking about my message today. I'm thinking about all the times that I've tried to hide my sin. That's exactly what I was hoping. If I just keep it secret, if I just tell people I'm good, I've always been good, I always will be good, this is gonna go away on its own. Or one day I'm not gonna struggle with this. One day I'm just magically gonna be able to control my mouth. One day I'm gonna have everything in order. Something's gonna change, something's gonna shift. God's gonna do a miracle. I don't know, something's gonna happen and it will all go away. So I'm going to hide it. And Adam and Eve tell us that it doesn't go away. It doesn't just disappear. God always sees. God always knows. So stop hiding it. The second thing that we can do is we can start asking God to search us. That's what the psalmist says in 139. Search me and see if there's anything offensive in me. This is a daring prayer. It's a bold prayer. It's bold because I know that there is offensive stuff in me. But we don't have to be afraid because once he points it out, 
He's already told us what to do with it. We don't have to make an imperfect sacrifice. We don't have to make a deal with him. We don't have to try to close the gap between he and us. We just take whatever he points out and we put it into the hands of Jesus who has offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus, we thank you. And thank you is not enough. Thank you is not enough for stepping up onto that altar that we know as Calvary. We are awed, we are blown away, we are humbled, we are awakened today, we are set free today. That the sacrificer and the sacrifice are one and the same. The offerer and the offering are the same. So search us now. Delicately, gently, but boldly search us. And we put our sin in your hands.